Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, last week we came to the Sermon on the Mount. The longest of five blocks of Jesus' teaching given in this Gospel of Matthew. And we started looking at the Beatitudes last week. Uh, and if truth be told, um, I've bumped Cal along in a couple of weeks' time so that we could have another week in the Beatitudes. Uh, but even then, I said, even with giving us an extra week, we're still looking at this from a great height. And as I did last week, I encourage you to keep looking into these things that we are talking about. But last week we thought about the kingdom <coughs> pardon me, and the rule as the rule and reign of God. And then as disciples, as followers of Jesus, what it looks like for us to live in this kingdom, to live under this rule of Christ, how that is the best life for us, the place where we find true joy and purpose and fulfillment. It's on the website now if you need to listen back to last week. Last week we thought about what it meant to be poor in spirit, that we come to God with nothing, as poor beggars with our bowls out, totally reliant on his grace. And that's how we must come to God. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And I mentioned briefly then last week how different this attitude is to that of the world's. In a world that promotes self, self-reliance, self-promotion, self-expression, to say, no, it's nothing of me and all of him is completely countercultural. And this is where I want us to start this week, in the counterculturalness, to see the counterculturalness of what we're talking about. How completely different anything we see in the Sermon on the Mount here and in these Beatitudes is in what we see in the world around us. So I've called this week the Upside Down Kingdom. The Upside Down Kingdom. I said last week someone called this Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom. And what we need to see, yes, it's a manifesto, but it's a revolutionary one. This is not a collection of nice sayings or moral aims. There is nothing natural about this. You can't be these things from birth. This needs the radical work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Jesus' teaching here is at complete odds with human wisdom. Completely different to what the world teaches or has to offer. The first thing we need to realize is that now we belong to a completely different kingdom. Now, when the announcement was made last week that Lewis Hamilton was leaving Mercedes for Ferrari, my first thought was, I can't be a Ferrari supporter. <laughs> I just can't do that. They're the bad guys of Formula One supposed to be. But my close second thought was, here's a great sermon illustration for the Beatitudes. He's changing kingdoms, going from Mercedes to Ferrari. But as I thought about it, I thought, that's not a great illustration, really. Yes, he's changing teams, but what does that actually mean? 
new colour overalls, new fans, new car, although it is still a car. It might now be red, but it's still got four wheels, a pointy nose, and his job is to still drive it the fastest round a track. He's still going to go to the same places, surrounded by the same people. I then thought maybe a better illustration of this was that of Lewis Rees-Samit. You might know of him. He was the Welsh rugby player who, on the eve of the Six Nations, announced he was giving up rugby to pursue his dream of playing American football. Well, that's a bit better of an illustration. He's changing, but when it boils down to it, he's still being paid to chase a funny-shaped ball around a pitch. Now, if Lewis Rees-Samit had announced that he was going to become a ballerina, well, then we would have been in business. That would have really helped me, because that's closer to where we're at. That's a new discipline on a new stage, literally, to a new audience with very little crossover between the two worlds. We need to see that we are in a completely new kingdom. Peter says we are aliens in this land, strangers in the world because we belong to a new kingdom. A new kingdom with complete new values and motives and priorities. Someone once said of the Beatitudes, it's as if Jesus crept into the display window of life and changed all the price tags. The world says those who find happiness are the popular, the gifted, the enterprising, the assertive, the beautiful. And Jesus turns it all upside down. And we see that, and we can see that as we look at the remainder of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Carl took us there with the kids this morning and showed us that, yes, this does even go beyond talking about general sadness. Yes, we mourn for sad things. We mourn after loss. But this beatitude is not advocating an e or spirit that is always negative. But what we see here is a godly mourning. Isn't it wonderful how all the Beatitudes are linked as you read them? The one who is poor in spirit, who comes with their bowl, sees that they are completely empty, will observe the sin in their own life and mourn it. They recognize that which keeps them from God and it saddens their heart. Those who live under the authority of Christ mourn also the effects of sin and destruction upon a world that does not recognize God or live his way. It is a godly sorrow that recognizes sin within and without. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. In a world that doesn't want to claim personal responsibility for anything that goes wrong, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, who see it for what it is, for they shall be comforted. And yes, we thought about comforted, it means cared for, but it also means strengthened, kept, and emboldened. Blessed are the mourn. Verse five, blessed are the meek, now, this is similar to what we were thinking of in the summer when we talked about the fruit of the spirit of gentleness. 
Jesus doesn't say blessed are the weak. That's not what we're talking about. But blessed are the meek, those who are humble. The meek care little for the position in other people's eyes. They're not full of pride that they're so easily offended. Yes, the meek feel injustice, but they can do so without resentment. The meek are happy to put other person's needs first to serve. In a world that says, think about number one, assert yourself, fight for your rights, trample on whoever you need to to get to the top. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who are forgiven should be those who forgive. But mercy goes further than this again. Again, those who see sin in themselves and the effect of sin in the world should be filled with compassion. We are surrounded by the brokenness of sin people who are affected by the consequences of their own sin or the sin of others upon them. And mercy has compassion on these people, on those stuck in these things. In a world which says look out for number one, or that maybe says look out for your own, but don't worry about anyone else. In a world that says people should lie in the bed they've made for themselves, Jesus tells a story of a good Samaritan who comes across a man robbed and beaten. He was from an enemy nation. The Samaritan hadn't caused his pain. It was others' fault. Perhaps he brought it upon himself. Others who were perhaps more qualified to help passed by, stayed in higher callings. Yet it's the Samaritan who took responsibility for him, ministered to him, and showed compassion. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God verse 8 blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God now there's a little debate around this one about what this one means some say purity of heart is talking about holiness to root out sin in one's life That certainly will fit with the rest of the theme of this sermon, where it goes. Others say here, um, pure means non-contaminated. Pure here is talking about a singleness of heart. That fits with what we were thinking about last week. You will seek me and you find, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. My question to those who like to argue about these things is, is there really much difference in those two things? Those who love God with all their heart will strive for holiness. Those who love God with all their heart will want to walk in his way. The psalmist prays for an undivided heart, one that would be uncompromisingly dedicated to a Lord, to his Lord. In a world that says you are master of your own life, Jesus says those who will see God are those who have a heart for him and a heart to live his way. Verse 9, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peace demands a humility, a forgiveness, and a love that is not often found in this world and is not of this world. Paul prays for the church that the peace of Christ would rule in their hearts. It's a peace that only comes from him. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll think about this a little bit more in a moment, but just think of the upside-downness of this. Blessed are they who are persecuted. It's the first sermon I ever preached here six years ago uh, in March when I came to preach with a view. 1 Peter 4. I won't test you on it now. But there we looked at how we could suffer for all sorts of reasons, Peter tells us. Sin. He says, don't suffer as murderers and thieves and meddlers. There's no blessing in suffering as a meddler or a gossip. But if you're insulted for the name of Christ, he says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just as we've taken this whistle-stop tour through the remainder of the Beatitudes, do you see our call here? Do you see the counterculturalness of what we're reading here? The upside-downness of the kingdom. What the world despises and looks down on, Jesus lifts up and praises. How could you summarize what we've read here? Where do we see the Beatitudes in all their fullness? Well, surely it has to be in Jesus Christ. So we look on the board there, Jesus mourned the effects of sin in the world. He stood over the city and said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Jesus mourned the effect of sin in the world. Jesus is meek. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus pursued righteousness. We saw that in his baptism the other week. He said he needed to be baptism because it was fulfilling, fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Those who came to him cried, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And he showed them it. And he shows us mercy. Ultimately at the cross. Jesus was pure in every sense of the word. He was sinless. He resisted to all temptation. Yet he was also single-heartedness. Showed single-heartedness in his desire only to do the Father's will. Jesus offers peace to all those who will come to him and he endured persecution to the heights that we would never know. Our call this year that God has put on our hearts is to know Christ, to love him, and we see here in the Beatitudes, to become more like him. To conform to the image of the Son. And the more we become like Jesus, 
the less we become like the world. Kingdom living means becoming like the king. So to live like this means to live differently from the world. It's not natural. We are reminded in Philippians that we are now citizens of heaven. We live in this world, but it is not home. Because this sermon shows us what the kingdom of God is like, but it also shows us in contrast to the kingdom of this world. Someone else has described the Beatitudes as a revolutionary lifestyle in a rotten culture. And in a moment, we'll get to the verses about salt and light, but what they and the Beatitudes show us is they are needed because this world is dark and it is a decaying place. So I want to spend these last few moments thinking about the outcomes of kingdom living in this dark world. What happens if we live beatitude lives, if we stand out in this world? And our passage tells us three things that will happen. And the first is persecution. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. The Bible says God's people will be persecuted. You see, the world, particularly the cultures that we live in, think it will welcome Christians with open arms. There is still a small sense of Christianity being part of British culture. I was watching the news this week and they were talking immigration and they were talking about those on the barge converting to Christianity. And the person there who they were interviewing said, on paper, it's a good thing for these folk to convert to Christianity because Christianity is a nice and peaceful religion. That's what they said. Christianity, nice and peaceful religion. Yes, we are fine with Christianity, they say, until the world is confronted with the truth. This was the testimony of Jesus. The light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This world is in rebellion against God. And faced with Jesus, faced with truth, they hated. And Jesus said, they hated me. And he said, they will hate you too. Nothing will anger this world more than people who are different to it. Nothing will irate and anger people more than those who live kingdom lives because it will show them their own. In a world that calls good evil and evil good to stand out for Jesus and his word might well mean marginalization, sneering, being looked over for opportunity. Falsehood and lies stated against you. And persecution. This is hard. And we stand with brothers and sisters across this world who know this in extreme ways. But we also stand with those more locally whose life is made hard because they live this kingdom living. And though it's hard, the Bible never denies that. The Bible even says there can even be joy found in this place. 
He said, because you are suffering, it says, because you hold his name. You're suffering because you hold the name of Jesus. He is with you. And as you look back and you see other saints, faithful saints of through history who have gone through this. As you look forward, you look to a time where all will be gone. Temporary sufferings now compared to an eternity of heaven. Jesus never hides. He said, if you stand out, you will be persecuted. The second two are more positive in thought though. It may seem paradox, paradoxical, but what we have seen is that Christians can be both hated and have a positive impact in the world. You see, we will know persecution. The second thing we will know, living kingdom living, is preservation. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, in our minds, when we think of salt, you probably go like me, think to the little shaker on your table with the white stuff in that makes your chips taste nice. And yes, you're not allowed too much of it. <laughs> too right. But that wasn't the primary use of salt in the ancient world. With no fridge or freezers, how did you keep your meat from going bad or rotten? Salt. You would get your salt and you would rub it in your meat and that would act as a preservative. And there's the picture. Now we see it, don't we? In a rotten world, Christians are to be salt. Those who live kingdom lives with these blessed qualities will have a preserving impact on the culture they are in. A culture that left to itself will rot. And this can happen on a large scale. In history, we have seen nations transformed and laws changed because of the influence of God's people. But it can happen on a much smaller scale too. Families, schools, workplaces, blessed because they have God's people living God's way amongst them. Kingdom living brings persecution brings preservation. And the third outcome, praise. What is the second picture we see here? You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? We said Jesus is the light of the world. And then in Ephesians and in other places in the New Testament, he calls us into the light. You were once in darkness, but now you are in the light. Jesus is in the light. He calls us into the light. But here he says, you are the light. We become light, transmitters of his life. And whilst we've seen that light exposes darkness and that is pushed back, at, light is also good. It shines into situations. It makes life easier. It brings warmth and joy. And Jesus says here, go be lights in the world. Let it shine out of you. Let this kingdom live in, in a dark world, see your light. Let it shine out. Why? 
so people will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven so that they too can see Jesus and praise his name. That's the kingdom call of kingdom living. To live lives that point to the king. That is our call. Salt and light. So that people look to Jesus Christ. But that will only happen and it only works if we live this counter-cultural, radical life we are called to. There were warnings in this passage too. Verse 13, it says, if the salt loses its taste, it's no good for anything. Now, how can salt lose its taste? Now, again, don't think about the white stuff on your table. You need to think how salt would have come back then, not in neatly packaged, but in big rocks. Salt on still on the stone. And there it was good. You could get it and rub it on the meat and it was great and it would work. But if you left the rock outside and it waned, the salt would get washed away. The taste on the rock would be good. The salt would be washed away and all you're left with is rock. And the passage says that's good for nothing except trampling under the ground, under your feet. That's the picture. If Christians lose their saltiness, if they lose their distinctiveness, if the Christian is no different to anyone else around them, then what effect can they have on those folk? It's a similar picture with the light. Verse 15, don't put your light under a dirty old bucket, as I used to sing when I was in Sunday school. You are the light of the world, so let your light shine before others. How will they see Jesus if you hide him away. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, this kingdom living, is a call to stick out like a sore thumb. So why has then the church in this nation over the years done everything it can to blend in. If we stop being different, we stop being effective. The world is dark and decaying, so why do we try and be like it? The only hope for this world is the gospel. We have the only answer. So we need to be totally different from the problem. People are attracted to the church when they see it is totally different from the world. When they can see Jesus Christ there. 
The call of the Sermon on the Mount is to live this revolutionary kingdom living in our own lives so that it will affect the world around us. This is the call of the kingdom. This is the best life. It's the blessed life. It's the only life. And our call to live this way is to show a dying world the saviour it needs to be lights in this world and salt. Let's not lose our saltiness. Let's not hide our light. Let's pray that the king is exalted and seen in our lives individually, in the lives of the church, so that the king will be known in this world for his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you that in him we see what it means to live in this kingdom, to see the seriousness of sin and mourn it, to have mercy on those affected by this sinful life, to have compassion on all around us. to hunger and thirst for your way, to be pure, to have an undivided heart, to live for you. Father, thank you in the person of Jesus. We see all this. And in some ways, that's why he says, well, how can we do that? How can we be like this? But Father, this is the call of the kingdom, the call on our lives. You have saved us and you've kept us and you are transforming us to be more like Jesus. So we pray that we would be those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. To come empty-handed, to be filled with you, but as you do, to be conformed more into the image of your Son. For a work of the Holy Spirit to change us, to change our hearts, our desires, our motives, our priorities, to be more like his, to love the things that he loves and hates the thing that he hates. And in this, Father, we pray that we would be salt and light to a dark and decaying world, that we would shine like stars, that we would be distinctive, that we would bring glory to Jesus Christ in our lives individually and in the lives of this church so that when others look in, they may want to hate what we stand for. But see that Jesus Christ is there and he is worthy of all praise and he is the only hope. Father, we thank you for these words, but I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters for what that means as we go to work tomorrow, as we step into our families who don't know you yet, as we're amongst our school friends, 
give us your power to stand and live this revolutionary life of the kingdom that you have called us to. Thank you that we are not of this world, that you have called us to a kingdom, to live under the reign and rule of Christ for eternity. And whatever hardness we will experience now, we know that it's temporary because our promise is true and eternal in you where we will be forever. We thank you for the confidence of the gospel, not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. Help us to live for him. Help us to glorify the king. Let us praise his name. Amen.